Hello, and welcome to Found, TechCrunch's podcast where we bring you the stories behind the startups from the founders themselves. Today, I'm joined, as always, by the fabulous... Dominic Midori Davis. Hey, Dom. How's it going on your nice, long European vacation? Vacation. I mean, I am working, but I mean, it's been it's been pretty nice. I'm currently in the English countryside, just chilling in a cottage. Oh, my so. God. <laughs> That's it. That sounds wonderful. I'm chilling in my moldy apartment that keeps flooding in New York. So maybe if you're dreaming of New York, I'm dreaming of the English countryside. <laughs> yeah. Well, today we've got a super fun show for you. We're talking to Catherine Tabor from Sparkfly, which is a customer engagement platform that offers rewards and other ways for companies to connect with their customers. Here's our conversation with Catherine. Hi, Catherine. How's it going? Hi, it's great. Why don't you tell us a little bit about Sparkfly? So Sparkfly is an offer and promotions and loyalty platform that works primarily today in the hospitality industry. And what we do is we connect the dots between digital and physical paper or print promotions all the way through to the transaction at the point of sale. And we're able to track the item level detail in real time when a promotion is distributed in the world, whether it's through a loyalty platform or some other digital or print channel back all the way through a transaction at the store. That all sounds really interesting. And I know just from being a consumer, I feel like loyalty programs are now very common, but maybe they weren't back when you guys were getting started with Sparkfly. And I'm curious, what got you interested in the space to begin with? Yeah, so, you know, I actually come from fairly humble beginnings. The real evolution of Sparkfly has been quite organic. I am a serial entrepreneur. I started my first business really right out of grad school here in Atlanta and had an opportunity very young to bid on a program at the Coca-Cola company where they were offering discounts to their employees as a benefit. Mm. And, you know, it's interesting because they were running this program with Disney tickets and movie tickets. I think a lot of large companies have employee perk programs and HR was running it and they weren't terribly strategic to the program. So they looked to outsource it. And I was running errands and earning extra college money. And my husband had built a website for my errand business and Coke found it and called me and didn't tell me who they were, but I had caller ID. So (laughs) I knew they were Coca-Cola. And so I bid on the program like I was filling out a term paper. I think my sister was on my org chart. You know, I, I think I said I, I'll work really hard several times in the in the RFP, but I ended up winning the contract to manage this employee discount platform for the Coca-Cola employees. And at the time, it was just online coupon codes. So you could go in, not dissimilar to like a retail me not or finding a coupon on the internet and enter a code on the computer to get your discount. And I, at the time, thought I would go raise some capital and really expand the business. But I was 26 and Southern and female and didn't have any real business experience. And so I got a lot of no's. So I picked up the phone and started calling other corporations to see if they had the similar program within their organization. And I built that employee discount 
online coupon platform to manage the employees, about a million employees nationally with companies like Delta Airlines and SunTrust Bank. But over time, I started to realize that the online coupon world had become very commoditized. And what was really missing in the space was the ability to receive a promotion digitally or through print, you know, back in the day, there was a lot of print coupons, and then actually track that transaction's behavior or that coupon's behavior all the way through to transaction. That's where Mm -hmm. things got lost, right? I could put a promotion out into the world, but did anyone actually use it? And when they used it, what did they buy? And so really, that's where I started to understand that that was a real gap in the marketplace. And The point of sale world is very complex and very fragmented, and no one had really tried to tackle that connectivity between that digital promotion and the physical transaction. So that's how it kind of all began to evolve into what, you know, now is a platform that we do hundreds of millions of transactions a day with some of the largest QSRs and food service companies in the world, like Chipotle. Mm -hmm. And I'm definitely curious what it was like building out that company. Obviously, like you noticed this gap in the market, mm-hmm. you have some experience in the space. But what was it like actually taking the plunge, building Sparkfly into what it is today? So, you know, it's interesting as I'm the mother of a, of a 16-year-old daughter, and it was a very interesting experience building a business, especially a digital technology business in Atlanta, <laughs> being a young female inexperienced entrepreneur. You know, I came out into the marketplace and started building companies when we were right past the dot-com era and everyone was raising venture capital. And there was this belief that you had to go and raise all this money and spend all this money. And, you know, I, I had never really fit that mold. And so I went and met probably with 300 VCs, you know, in the beginning of my career And I heard no every time, but I'm a big believer that, you know, if if you can't get in the door, you can kind of crawl in the window sometimes. And so I realized pretty early on that I had to be focused on building a real company and something that would actually make money and that I could bootstrap into being profitable. And so within my first business venture, I just dug deep and started realizing what the real business model was and how to make money and how to have a, a sustainable company. And once I began to see what was really a bigger opportunity in connecting the dots between promotions and the physical store, I'd had a track record by then. Mm -hmm. And so I was actually able to go and raise some venture money to actually it's never been venture. I have some very large angel investors who came into the company and allowed me to buy some technology and develop some technology ahead of revenue so that we could really go forward and develop what is Sparkfly today. So it was certainly an evolution over many, many years. But I think it's out of that learned some very important concepts around, you know, how you treat your customers and how you sell and manage expectations to customers and how you build a real company. And, you know, there are some very kind of fundamental elements to that that were important and going through some challenges early. Why did you decide to go the angel investor route? Because no VC would invest. (laughs) I mean, you know, I would have taken venture money. You know, I've had some interesting experiences. I have memories of, I've had a lot of stamina in this space. You know, I've had VCs say to me, Catherine, sometimes you just have to know when to quit. 
<laughs> or mm-hmm. you're never going to convince point of sale companies to integrate into your platform before a customer asks them to do it. Or point of sale world is impossible. You can't go tackle it. So, you know, I was really fortunate that I was able to identify some other entrepreneurs who I think really saw in me that I was very passionate about what I was doing and had a belief that I could make some of these things happen. And I think they'd probably gone through some similar instances themselves, but I've never been able to attract kind of traditional VC into the business. And you're based in Atlanta, right? Correct. How have you seen the Atlanta tech and founder ecosystem evolve over the years as you've been growing your company there? Well, it's interesting. I have been super heads down, honestly, as an entrepreneur in the Atlanta market and focused on building, not just building the business, but building the team that we have internally. You know, once I realized that the venture world here was not really the perfect fit for me, it hasn't been something that I have interacted with a lot honestly. I, you know, have a lot of great mentors in my industry who I've been able to cultivate and some have come onto the board of directors at the company. And I've really found more connections through that, through my industry than through the VC space. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious too, because you have been building Sparkfly for so long. Obviously, as you mentioned a little bit in one of your answers earlier, technology has changed a lot. Mm -hmm. How people interact with maybe these loyalty programs or with these brands in general has changed quite significantly even in the last five years. Mm -hmm. And so I'm curious, like, how do you feel you've been able to keep Sparkfly in step with all these different advances in technology, advances in how we communicate with companies and brands and sort of what was it like making decisions of like when to push forward, when to evolve and when to maybe wait and see what trends stick? Well, I think part of the reason why it's taken some time is that we were super early. (laughs) You know, I Mm. think that very fortunately, because I had been living very close to the customer experience and the merchant experience in my early days doing discounts and promotions in this employee environment, I saw this gap kind of way out. When I first started to develop technology around these coupons, it was a clip to card world. Mm. There were like the grocery cards that used to scan in the grocery store. So it hadn't even really moved into this mobile environment. So I saw this gap very early. And it's great because I was able to go into these point of sale companies before mobile payments had happened and really digital transformations within a lot of their customers. And so companies like, you know, NCR and Oracle and these big point of sale giants had some willingness to do some integrations with us very early before they were really inundated with all of this innovation that happened. So we're really early to the market. And I was very fortunate in that I acquired a technology in the process that was a very early pioneer in that clip to card space. And one of their technologists who is a brilliant individual, came in to work with me as part of that acquisition. And he really understood the value of a scalable kind of distribution agnostic platform. So as we went in to start building this connectivity to the point of sale, this pipe between that 
in-store system and the external distribution, we built it so it was super scalable and could evolve with the market. So whether or not you're putting a promotion on a swipe card or on a print piece of paper or through a mobile phone or a QR code, you know, that side of the distribution can continue to evolve and grow because who knows where all of this will eventually end up. And where we were really solving a big problem was in at scale, connecting all these point of sale systems and all of these in-store systems so that they could ingest this data regardless of how it was distributed into the market. Mm. So it was always built with the idea that we didn't know exactly where it would evolve to. And so Mm -hmm. it had to be agile. It had to be scalable. You know, we were just really fortunate that we got these early connections and then we had some foresight to think it is going to have to connect with the world wherever people are, wherever the consumer is. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's super interesting because you definitely see, especially some startups today, kind of pigeonhole themselves into like, oh, this works with one piece of technology. Oh, this is just a mobile app. Or what I'm really trying to get at is the like NFT kind of community. Like there are a lot of NFT focused companies. And then it's like, well, what happens if this doesn't actually take off? What happens if no one Mm -hmm. actually decides to use this in a few years? And it's like all of your eggs are in one Mm -hmm. basket. So it is really interesting to hear about making that intentional choice to be like, well, no, we want this to work as technology changes or as people interact with it changes, because sometimes that foresight isn't always present in the startup community as much as you would assume it would be. Well, with age comes wisdom. (laughs) I think, you know, I think that it's chase the shiny object, right? It's like, there's all this hype sometimes around, oh, you know, loyalty's the thing or one thing or another. And the truth is that the strategy has to kind of encompass something bigger than that, right? It has Mm. to, you know, if you're really focused on, in my industry, the relationship with the customer and how you're going to drive that repeat loyal engagement with the customer, it's bigger than points. You have to be able to communicate and interact with that customer in many ways to, I think, really build that. And I think Chipotle, as a customer of ours, has been, you know, such a great teacher for us, such a great partner for us, because they're always thinking about, okay, what, you know, what's that relationship with the customer? How can I interact with them through whatever form of media, whether it is our loyalty application or it's on TikTok or through Instagram, where are they? Or through gamification and some of the things that they've done with Roblox and some of the Mm -hmm. virtual burritos and things we've done with them. So what I think that they value about us is we can adapt our platform again to thinking back years ago to how we need to be where the customer is and enable these programs for them regardless of where they want to run these programs. Wait, so you guys helped with the Roblox, the virtual Chipotles? We did. Oh, I thought that was so fun. (laughs) I don't even play Roblox, but I feel like I read like an embarrassing amount about that for someone who has like no, no touch on the game. Chipotle, and we have we have a lot of really great customers, but Chipotle's been great and they have so much viral power that mm. they come in and I think overwhelmed Roblox for a little bit with how much volume and engagement they had. But 
that's what they're really good at. They're really good at activating their customer base and engaging with those customers. And so, you know, what we do in that instance is we make that virtual burrito that you save into your digital wallet, which we power in the Chipotle app. Anywhere there's a promotion or an offer that you've received in your Chipotle world, that digital wallet or promotions wallet is what Sparkfly manages for them. So it Mm. drops into that wallet and then as you redeem it in the store, we manage that whole process so that they can track it effectively and and understand the behavior of the customer. We did a really neat one with them too, with Twitter during the NBA finals, every time, and I cannot remember what the word was, that every time they said score or basket or, you know, during the NBA final, you could tweet that and win a burrito and drop it in your box, in your virtual wallet. But it's just interesting how they conceive of these ideas that they want to go to these platforms and we can go with them and help them enable programs that they can track all the way through to redemption and really understand the value and behavior you know, of those programs that they run. Mm-hmm. And we're going to jump into a quick break, but stick with us to hear more from Catherine on how she built her company without VC money and landed big partners like Chipotle. How did you and Chipotle initially come together? Did you approach them or did they approach you? You know, again, in every in every aspect of this journey, it's been nasty, quite frankly. I have a contact at NASCAR who had introduced me to a digital manager at Chipotle, and he and I stayed in touch with each other. You know, I would ping him about every three or four months for about two years until in 2017, they made a decision that they were going to really embark on some digital transformation as a business. I think when we started with them, they had about 6,000 app users. Of course, now they have what, 37 million loyalty members. And so they had realized that they were going to really go all in and digital and they were very smart and wanted to build it correctly and start with a really great foundational infrastructure. I had been talking with Jackson for years and he remembered, circled back and, you know, we were able to start the conversation and they invited us to participate in the RFP. And we didn't have any large customers at the time. It's not dissimilar, really. So when I won my first contract with Coke so many years ago, of course, my sister was not on my org chart when we pitched Chipotle, but we were certainly the underdog in that proposal. But I believe that Chipotle could see that Sparkfly, we're a very human organization. We really value each other as people at Sparkfly. And I believe strongly that that translates into how we treat our customers. And I think they, I know they saw that, that they knew that we would go the extra mile for them every single time to help them achieve their goals. And so they took a chance on us. And, you know, after a five-year run with them, they just renewed another five years with us. So it's been a really great partnership with them. Do you ever think about the fact that, or maybe you don't, maybe I'm just being cynical, but we talk to companies sometimes who fall into a similar category in the sense of like, obviously it wasn't easy for you guys to land a client like Chipotle, but you did. And you can land these big, big customers, name brand, household names, and then venture investors tell you to like give up the company. And I'm curious if you ever think about that sort of divide 
that investors don't think you can succeed. But then on the other hand, it's like these huge corporations are like, no, this is what we're looking for. Like, we want to hire you to do this. Like, this divide is something we see in venture kind of all the time, it feels like. Right. So we've really grown a lot, especially in the last several years. I mean, our revenue has kind of doubled year over year. We doubled our team last year. Mm. We're right. We're right at around 42 people now. So that's a lot of growth for a small company and and really, you know, coming out of COVID too, when all of a sudden we weren't together anymore every day. So we have continued to add, you know, customers like Bojangles and Denny's and lots of big companies. And we're doing that profitably as a business, which takes some of that pressure off of us not you know, having to go and raise a bunch of capital. We're kind of in mm-hmm. control of our own destiny. I think, again, <laughs> coming out of early days when, you know, I can remember early days of employees when I would quite literally look out the window of the office and see everybody's cars out there and think, everybody out here has a car payment. Like, mm. you know, the people who are working here have trusted me that they're going to come into this business and have a job based on my, on some ways from my business decisions. So, you know, we have continued to grow the business thoughtfully and haven't had a lot of pressure from our angel investors to exit the business or do something different or or grow too fast or all of those things. Now, do I believe that someday we will be part of something bigger? Probably. Hmm. But, you know, I think that I know that we will continue to do that thoughtfully and make sure that we're continuing to take care of our customers. And we've really tried to align ourselves with partners too that share some of the same values that we do as far around customer service and experience and, you know, taking care of them. But that is a very good question. You know, how how do you go from really being thought of in some ways as kind of a boutique or or something that is very service oriented to, you know, we're a SaaS model and we've really scaled our business Mm -hmm. to 17,000 locations and lots of customers and lots of coupons out there. But I'm proud that this team that we have to date, you know, we've been able to scale this business and take care of our customers. I mean, we had 100% retention rate in customers last year. So Mm. we didn't have anybody leave, but we also had 100% retention in our team which I think is really interesting, even through the growth. You know, again, I think if you understand how those kind of intersect, I think that's a very important thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was kind of going to ask you about that because we were talking about how you take care of customers. And I wanted to talk about your relationship with your employees and kind of what your leadership style is. So I'm very hands-on. <laughs> I'm very transparent. So when when COVID occurred, we had an office space. We still have a, a small office here, but it's more of a collaborative space. And so when we all kind of went home, there was a lot of fear. We are in the hospitality business and suddenly nobody could go to restaurants. <laughs> and it was like, you know, are we going to lose any of our people? How are we going to weather this storm? And fortunately, we had great customers who actually ended up thriving during the pandemic. And they've been thoughtful enough digitally that companies like Chipotle did well because people were, you know, ordering delivery or going through the chip lane or whatever. But I started having weekly all-hands calls where, you know, I said to the team, I said, look, I can't promise you that I will always tell you good news, mm-hmm. but I will always tell you the truth, always. And I'll give you warning if, you know, something's coming. 
and we stayed close as a team. But the other thing that I started to do was I started having 30-minute one-on-one conversations with every person individually once a quarter. And I've continued to do that even as we've grown as a business. And I know that's not scalable in an organization of a thousand people. And it's an investment when you're over 40, but it's so valuable because you just get insight into what really makes these folks tick and what's important. And I really do my best to listen. You know, things come out of those calls. We started a 401k match out of a suggestion in those calls. Everybody wanted a sweatshirt. <laughs> so we we did some swag out of those calls. And it's really 30 minutes that I invest in our team that has no agenda other than how are they doing? Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think they, be- first time I talk to folks, I, they're like, really? <laughs> are you serious? This isn't some sort of a review or a critique, but it's just was a, it's just been a way that I've tried to bridge the business together. That philosophy has translated into our VP layer of our business. And as we've continued to grow the rest of our developers and our team, I just feel like there's not fear. And I have a question or I'm concerned about this or I, you know, we kind of carry the ball for each other if somebody needs to be out or, you know, it's just we're human. We treat people like we want to be treated. And I do believe that that has translated to our customers, too. Mm-hmm. And how big is your team right now? 42 people. 42 people. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's a lot of calls. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot of calls. And it's a lot of information. And But I, mean, I feel like I get more out of it than they do, honestly. It's a really cool group of people. And it's been interesting to watch the Zoom calls. So we do our, our team meetings monthly now. We don't have to do them every week anymore. But, you know, if you, as I've watched the grid grow on Zoom, that's been a super fulfilling thing to watch. We've been super fortunate. We've just, we have a kind of a no jerk policy mm-hmm. in our company, right? Everybody has to be a helper and focused on being good to each other. That's a very important tenet of the business. Mm-hmm. Now that we talked a little bit about the employees and sort of what that structure looks like, I'm curious for you, since you mentioned you're still an entrepreneur, you have kids, you've been in this business for a while. What has the journey like been growing the company for you personally? It's been a big part of my life. I mean, I have I have one daughter, mm-hmm. so I don't have I don't have many, many kids. Honestly, I'm glad I have a daughter. I'm glad she can see me pursue my dreams and you know, not be afraid or be afraid, but overcome the fear that I have in doing that. I have a very supportive husband. I have a, a very supportive kind of family unit <laughs> that has allowed me to be very focused on this business for a long time. But I've, I also have realized that hiring and bringing people into the company that are great at the things that I'm not Mm. and being able to recognize that I'm not good at everything. And there's a certain role that I have in this company, but that I bring good people in and I trust them to do their job. That's made this a sustainable thing for me Mm. because I, I by nature am, you know, a bit of a perfectionist when it comes to certain things, but I had to learn fairly early on that I can't do it all. And it is one of those journeys 
that takes stamina. I love to cook mm. and I think I like to cook. I've, I've rationalized with myself why I enjoy that as a hobby, but I think it's because I can start something and finish it mm. <laughs> because when you're growing a company, it's never, there's never an end to kind of what you're trying to accomplish really. I mean, of course you set your strategic goals and, and you go to meet those goals, but I think I enjoy doing things. I make the bed every morning. I think I can, I know if I make the bed, there's something that's actually been accomplished, (laughs) you know, during the day. So you have to have a mindset that it's just, you're in it for the long haul. Mm -hmm. No, I love that. Cause I know for me personally, I like to knit when I watch Mm -hmm. TV and people are always like, oh, knitting, like, isn't that like my grandma does that? And I'm like, <laughs> well, it's a hobby where you complete the project and yes. you have something afterward that you can yes. then use. So it's a very satisfying hobby. So I, yes. t- I totally know what you mean. of sort of taking that approach of seeing things through and kind of knowing that you can get there if you do that. For sure. And you have to kind of compartmentalize a little bit, but right? But it's like, here, have my suit. It's a finished thing. So now I can kind of say, okay, now I can get up in the morning and go do this other thing that, of course, you know, and that's why we do set goals and we, you know, have things that we want to accomplish and attain as a company and celebrate. I think it's important to celebrate those milestones because there's just a, it's a lot when you're growing a business, especially technology business with lots of moving parts and you're you're managing these very kind of mission critical programs for these big customers and they have a lot invested and a lot of trust in you you know there's a lot to that so what's next for you and the company you know we've got some big sales goals and revenue goals that we're trucking right along as i mentioned earlier you know, we just launched a loyalty ish aspect to our platform. So offers and promotions, but we're really good listeners as a company. And so to your point, loyalty has kind of ebbed and flowed and is evolving. And people are really trying to understand what what that means and what the value really is. And so we believe we are on a really good path in new aspects to our product that are going to really address some of those concerns in the market. So we're gaining a lot of traction from customers who really have been dissatisfied with how the status quo is. So we're excited and optimistic about our growth trajectory. You know, I tell my team all the time, we're focused on building a real business and we're going to continue to grow that business. As we do that, good things will happen. And so I think from our perspective, it's about continuing to grow the team, grow the business, deliver on the promise that we've made to our customers and evolve our product in a thoughtful way that really addresses the needs of the market. Do you have any dream partnerships or companies that you would like to work with? You know, I um, we're continuing to think about big restaurant opportunities. You know, I would love to have some meaningful conversations with Inspire Brands in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. They're in Atlanta or maybe Wendy's or some of these other large QSRs. I think we can bring a lot to the table with them. We've been really fortunate in our relationships with our current customers that We've been able to forge relationships with folks like Oracle and Salesforce and some of those guys from a partnership standpoint, but continuing to think of those guys and have them see us strategically is something that we're trying to continue to evolve just because I believe 
we can bring a lot of value to the programs that they're delivering to their customers. So that was a good question. I think it's continuing to evolve that customer ecosystem as well as the partners that we're bringing into that. Mm -hmm. I always like to ask people who have been working at their business for a while now this question, but if you were to start the company over, what would you do differently? I would trust myself sooner. Mm. You know, I was 26 years old when I first started business and I heard, you need, Catherine, you can't do this. You have to go hire a management team. Well, I did. And, you know, I had to recover from that a couple of times. Like I, I didn't, I didn't really trust my instincts as much early on as I wish I had. And, you know, as I've kind of settled into that trust in myself, things have happened more quickly for us. So Mm -hmm. just to realize my own value in this venture and, you know, that we can go do this is probably if if I'd realized that sooner, it would have saved me some pain. But I'm a believer that, you know, you get where you are because of where you've been. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't know how much I would actually change. I wouldn't have as much gray hair, but (laughs) I don't know (laughs) how much I would change. (laughs) Well, perfect. Well, yeah, I think that puts us right about at time. So thank you so much, Catherine. This has been a pleasure. Thank you guys very much. I appreciate the opportunity. So that was our conversation with Catherine. And dear listeners, you may have realized Sparkfly isn't exactly a startup anymore, but it once was. And I think hearing more of these types of stories about companies that sort of grow out of the startup space and as an IPO don't end up being owned by private equity is sort of an interesting track we don't get to hear about as often. I'm curious, Dom, what did you think? Yeah, I thought it was really interesting. I mean, because she said she had like a lot of angel investors and because of that, she didn't feel the pressure of constantly having, I guess, to give returns to traditional VCs. And I wonder how much that helped her in the long run, you know, being able to grow the business the way she wanted to and not having to kind of rush and hurry things and do everything so inflated. She was able to kind of steadily grow the company. Mm -hmm. It's funny because you generally just see VCs talking about how like you don't need to raise VC capital as a startup. But it's kind of nice to hear her story because the fact that she raised from angels that sort of allowed her to have this longer timeline as opposed to just like a straight bootstrapping is like somewhere kind of in the middle that I feel like we don't talk about much because... It's either it seems like it's very, oh, you raise VC capital or it's like you don't raise capital at all. And there's definitely ways to kind of grow while doing something in the middle. Yeah. But it was also kind of sad to hear that she had like 300 rejections from traditional VCs. And it made me think of just how hard it is being, I guess, like, I don't know, being a woman running a company pitching this like when the market was really, really early and getting 300 no's. And so it's kind of like she had to kind of get angel investors, but I think it worked out for her. I definitely always think it's interesting, like infinitely, not just this company, but companies that struggle or in this case aren't able to raise VC at all. It's interesting when those are the companies that can name like the huge customers. Like it's like, okay, well, if Chipotle, ginormous public company, wants to implement this across the board to like all of their stores in the US, their customer base, their rewards program. And like VCs are like, I don't see why this is a company. It's just like that misalignment never ceases to like amaze me. I, guess I know it's like word. just casually having Chipotle and Denny's as clients. 
It's like there's clearly, I know. clearly they see the vision. Right. So it's like if your customer, I mean, I guess it matters more that your customers see the vision than a potential investor. But it is interesting when it's not like, oh, it was hard for her to raise, but she still ended up landing. Like the five VCs who like understood sort of thing, like having like no VCs be interested when it's clearly like the customers were like, we've been looking for something like this. It's always bizarre how that like doesn't line up. I know. And she was like so early. I mean, it's so crazy because to think of how awards are now, it's it's weird to think of something without a reward program. Mm -hmm. But I can only imagine what the very beginning early days were like. Yeah. It's interesting to hear about how they kind of have continued to grow and change as technology has. So I know I mentioned this a little bit in our conversation with her, but I mean, you've got companies today who are like, we're an NFT company. And it's like, okay, well, what if everyone moves past that technology in two years? Like, what are you actually then? As opposed to being like, we're like a customer client reward program and being able to kind of allow the company to actually grow with technology, which I feel sets them up a lot better than maybe people coming in now who are focused on like, we're a mobile customer rewards company or we're app-based or we're centralized. It's good to kind of hear about a company that sort of is built to last the changes in the tech ecosystem. I know. I'm trying to think, like, do you think they planned this or were they just really lucky in terms of market positioning or probably a mixture of both, I'm assuming? Probably a mixture of both. I feel like marketing in particular, with like the goal being the rewards program, I feel like that framing makes it easier probably to sort of transcend like innovations in tech. But maybe I'm just making it too simplified. No, oh my goodness, something I really wish we asked her about was her patenting all of this technology. Because mm-hmm. I mean, I don't I don't know, like, what's the patent process for all of this? And what does that mean now in terms of other reward programs? I don't know. Yeah, no, especially because patents, I traditionally, and maybe this is just because I don't dive into the space that often, but patents to me are always like that really hard tech that you invented like with your hands. That's a gadget. That's a process within a machine. That's a XYZ. So like a patent on like the specific way of using tech to like market customer rewards programs. I'm like, I do. You're right. I wish we did ask because I have a lot of questions, but they may questions. all just be based on the fact that I don't understand how the patent system works. So <laughs> yeah, same here. <laughs> same here. I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and also like her as a founder and a leader, she seemed to, I actually really liked her leadership style. Mm-hmm. Seems to be a very human approach to running a company, leading a team and servicing employees, just like you service customers, really. Mm-hmm. I just think the fact that she does the one-on-one calls with everyone at the company still, and I mean, like she said herself, like obviously that doesn't scale if the company really starts to grow size-wise, but that's like the most direct feedback you can get. Like, that's crazy. Like, imagine if Jim, this Yahoo CEO, talked to all of us like once a month. I know. <laughs> he wouldn't do anything else. I know. Oh my goodness, there's like so many of us. But that's also really interesting in terms of thinking about how it's been, I don't know, like 12 years and the company still only has 40 people. I know. And so it's kind of what does scaling and growth look like? Because maybe she doesn't need any more employees. Maybe 40 is enough and it's proven to be enough. So it's like maybe maybe it's just, you know, she runs it like this. No, that's super eye opening, especially I mean, you know, like we've been watching layoffs for over a year now because companies started using hiring and headcount as like a metric of growth, which clearly when you talk to a company like this, it's like great perspective that sure, we all knew that that wasn't necessarily a sign of growth when, you know, VCs were marketing that and started for marketing it, too. But it is good to get that like counter perspective that it's like, no, this company has been around for literally over a decade. 
it's grown its customer base substantially, but it didn't need to go out and just like hire everyone under the sun to make it happen. Yeah, which goes back to being outside of the venture bubble. Mm-hmm. And she wasn't under pressure to scale and grow like so fast. And she's been able to kind of run a, a lean, um, I don't know, small ship. And it's worked. No, yeah, that's why it's like it's definitely, even though she's a little out of the startup realm, like definitely things that especially early companies can take away from this. Just because you can't raise VC money, that doesn't mean you can't raise any sort of money at all to help. And things about headcount and hiring and growth. And there's just a lot of good stuff in here. Yeah, yeah. Found is hosted by myself, TechCrunch senior reporter Becca Skutak, alongside senior reporter Dominic Midori davis Found is produced by Maggie Stamets with editing by Kel. Our illustrator is Bryce Durbin. Found's audience development and social media is managed by Morgan Little, Alyssa Stringer, and Natalie Kreisman. TechCrunch's audio products are managed by Henry Pickovit. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week. 